All right, so this is week three of a series that we're calling Love Beyond Belief, uh, serving as kind of an introduction to an era of the future of our community that we as a group of leaders are sensing that God is, is leading us into, where we're learning how to relate to people who see the world and believe things very different than we do, even things that we care about very deeply. Uh, as a leadership, we've just got a sense that these days there is so much division within the Christian church, and then on top of that, so much polarization of the Christian church with the surrounding society that it's high time that we learn to, to get along better, that, that we learn how to relate better than we're, we're currently relating. And, and what we're not talking about is allowing our uncompromising convictions to compromise the way that we do relationship. But at the same time, we're not talking about you know, uncompromising our relationships in a way that forces us to compromise our convictions. We've been learning that there actually could be a third option that retains both of those values in uncompromising ways. That's what we're referring to as love beyond belief. Being able, on the one hand, to embrace people fully and engage in relationship with them wholeheartedly without abandoning our own convictions in spite of differing convictions in their worlds about things that we care about very much. That, that's where we sense God leading us. And so this series has served as kind of an introduction to kind of explain a little more of what it is that we're actually talking about when we mean love beyond belief. We started a couple weeks ago realizing that this isn't a journey away from the person of Jesus. On the contrary, this is a journey probably closer toward the person of Jesus than ever before. As we, uh, as we try to adopt the, the mindset of Jesus and as we try to aspire to the character of Jesus through his transforming work by, by his spirit, seeking to become the answer to the one prayer of Jesus for oneness among his followers. So for people who heard, you know, love beyond belief as some kind of abandonment of beliefs, as if we were becoming kind of new age or universal, you know, quite the opposite. This is a journey towards full devotion to the person of Jesus Christ. This is a journey that is unapologetically Christ-centered. And then last week, after kind of introducing things that way, we began to take a step in that direction to kind of paint the picture of what this journey can can look like. And we started to discover that the journey of love beyond belief is in no way abandoning or lessening the value of beliefs. Again, on the contrary, it's actually about strengthening them and about deepening them. And it, we learned that it's as you deepen and strengthen your convictions that you develop the capacity to live and relate this way. It reminds me of what Peter teaches in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he, he says there to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Peter says to always be prepared to explain, to articulate your convictions, to know what you believe and why you believe it. And we learned last week that when it comes to learning how to relate by deepening our convictions, deepening our convictions actually helps us in two ways. The first way we learned about 
was that by deepening our convictions, we develop humility. We develop humility. That, that, that's what happens every time you learn something new and are learning more. Whether you're learning about auto mechanics or learning a musical instrument, you're learning another language or you know, you're learning whatever. It doesn't matter, computers. As you learn more, inevitably you start to learn how much more you have to learn. Right? As you learn more in the learning process, what you learn the most is how much more you have to learn. And it humbles you. And the same thing's true, or at least ought to be true, in spirituality when we're learning about the Bible and about, and about the life of Jesus. As you learn more about faith in Christ, it only opens up the door to realize how much more you have to learn. And so if you're in a place where you're holding convictions arrogantly, you know, maybe you haven't developed and strengthened and deepened those convictions enough. Maybe you actually need to be on a journey to learn more. And the other thing we discovered when you begin to, to deepen and strengthen your convictions, to always be prepared to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you, you profess, is you start to actually, in, in becoming more humble, you actually start to need other people. And you start to value diversity of perspective and opinions. Mike blew us away, I felt, last week when he told us the story of uh, biblical scholar N.T. Wright who said to this class that Mike was attending, the very first class, that in his estimation, he probably had you know, 30% of what he believed was wrong and he didn't even know what 30% that was. And he said that he needed his students to speak in and to sharpen and to challenge his beliefs to help refine and to help further strengthen and clarify his convictions. We discovered in those ways that the journey of deepening and strengthening your convictions, not abandoning your beliefs, is the journey towards being able to relate more freely with people who believe other things or interpret things differently or see things from a different point of view than you do. But I want us to appreciate that at this point, I, I, I kind of recounted that because, you know, if where we're at is learning to kind of be open to people, for Jesus' sake, and then in deepening our convictions, learning to kind of include people for our own growth's sake. You know, so far we've covered the ground of what you would call tolerance or consideration. You know, basically we've become Canadian. You know, we've, we've been learning to, to be tolerant toward other people and to be considerate of other people and their, and their views. But at this point, we're far from done because that's still a long way from the fullness and warmth of embrace and non-conditional acceptance and relationship that love beyond belief demands. And so the question today is, what closes that gap? What, what moves us closer to experiencing the fullness of that kind of relationship with people who see things very different than we do? Well, again, contrary to what you may intuitively feel, it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling of wanting to be around people or a warm, fuzzy feeling of love that's going to close that gap. In fact, what it is, is a continued deepening and strengthening of the convictions that we've already been encouraged and challenged to deepen and strengthen. And I want to begin our, our study today uh, with 1 Corinthians 13. This is kind of going to anchor everything else. And so I want us across all of our locations to read this out loud together, okay? So let's read this out loud. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Are you ready? Here we go. Read with me. It says, If I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge but didn't love others, I would be nothing. 
If I understood all of God's secret plans, possessed all knowledge, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Paul is setting up a contrast here, and I hope that you can appreciate that the key words here are the words all and the word nothing, because he's comparing what a life would be like if you knew everything about God and faith and the Bible and knew it perfectly with what life would be like if you lacked love. And remember Mike said last week that there was some mathematical calculation of like 17 trillion permutations and combinations of what you could ultimately fully believe about, about God and faith. If you were correct, you know, the, the one in 17 trillion in, in perfect rightness on, on all things of faith, but still lack love. Paul says you actually, from a spiritual perspective, are amounting to nothing, that there's zero value in that. Because of the value that he's placing on love. The value that he's placing on love. And you need to appreciate that Paul's not just making this up or espousing his own opinion. In a lot of ways, he's, he's rooting this, if not quoting, the teachings of Jesus from, among other places, Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus in his day was challenged to kind of boil down or summarize all 613 Jewish laws and all of the teachings of the Old Testament prophets down into one core kind of big idea. And he responds by providing this dual directed idea of love. He refers to it as the greatest commandment. And I hope that we can appreciate that Jesus isn't denouncing all of the other commandments. He's not denouncing all of the truths and all the law and all the instructions and things that are, that are contained throughout the Bible. And particularly in that case, throughout the Old Testament. In a lot of ways, he's saying the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 13, where he says in verse 10, that love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of all that's written throughout the law in the Old Testament. And I hope that we can appreciate that because for some of us, as we've been beginning and journeying, you know, in this adventure of faith and starting to kind of develop convictions and, and understand the Bible a little better, we might think that there's a big difference between what we read in the Old Testament before Jesus and what we read in the New Testament through and after the life of Jesus. As if, you know, one half involves a different kind of God, like a more vengeful kind of, uh, you know, aggressive God versus a merciful and, and very forgiving God in the New Testament. I, I want us to appreciate that the Bible is consistent from front to back. And, you know, from a, from a, a bird's eye view, from a big picture perspective, the Bible teaches and points to one thing ultimately in the person of Jesus. But from front to back... It consistently values of all of the instruction, commands, you know, warnings and encouragements that it provides. It consistently elevates and kind of umbrellas all of that with the value of love. What Jesus refers to as the first and greatest commandment. The value of love. You see this play out then in practical ways um, in the New Testament, for example, it played out in ways when, when people in the New Testament church started to kind of argue or, or debate different things. You know, one example was in, in Galatians chapter five, there were certain people who were part of that 
uh, church that had come from a Jewish background and had been uh, kind of raised to identify their allegiance and their identity with God through, among other things, the process of male circumcision. And there were some who joined this church that didn't come from a Jewish background. And so when they entered the church and converted to following Jesus, the Jewish Christians were kind of debating with them about whether they needed to engage in that process as well. And they were, you know, disagreeing and arguing for, I think, obvious reasons. And uh, the Apostle Paul tries to kind of police the, the, police the conversation a little bit in Galatians 5. And notice what he says here. He says in verse 6, in Christ Jesus, meaning as followers of Christ, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any ultimate value. Not, neither of you are going to ultimately win this argument. He says, at the end of the day, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What he does to kind of break the tie is kind of provide a higher value command, a higher value law of love above any of the laws that they feel like they're debating. Which means, in other places... That we don't need to debate those kind of differences of opinion and perspective as vehemently and as aggressively as we may feel in our spirits. Now, Paul writes this to a church leader named Titus in Titus chapter 3. He says, to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law and about your interpretations of it. Because he says these are unprofitable and useless. Why would arguments about differences of conviction be unprofitable and useless if we've already said that convictions matter? It's not the convictions that are unprofitable and useless. It's the arguing about it that Paul is identifying that has no ultimate value. Because he's evaluating all of this according to God's value system that has prioritized above all else this first commandment law of love. And so by contrast, if you do want to be engaged in things of value, you can do what Jesus says in John 13, 35. He says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples. By arguing and quarreling about the law and your interpretation. of No. He says, if you love one another. Arguing about, you know, incidentals has no value. Loving one another, he says, has great value, mostly because love, biblically, is so synonymous with who the character of God is. Look at what it says in 1 John 4, verse 8. It says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Stop and, and just let's call a time out here and reflect on the language used in in. Some of these passages, you know, I, I could have all knowledge and understand all things, but if I lack love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. The first, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love other people as yourself. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Paul says that love completely fulfills the law. That you can show yourself to be a reflection of Jesus if you love one another because God is love. And in a life of faith, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Think about that language. 
all, nothing, first, greatest, completely fulfilled, only thing that counts. God is synonymous with love. Have you ever appreciated from a theological perspective the primacy of the truth that love is among all of the truths that the Bible provides? Have you ever appreciated the fullness and the extremity, the superlative way in which love is described to umbrella and to supersede everything else that the scriptures teach? Have you ever fully embraced, not as a feeling, but at a conviction level, the primacy of the law of love? See, the point for today is that if we're going to get to a place where we can love beyond belief, where we can fully embrace people who are very different than us and see things very different from the way that we do, it's not just going to be because we kind of tolerate them or because we feel like we, we need them. And it's not going to be because of a warm, fuzzy feeling that we have for them. It's only going to be as we strengthen and develop our convictions. And here's the thing today. As we organize and as we prioritize those convictions in the same way that the God of the Bible does. It's not just a matter of deepening and strengthening your convictions. But as you deepen and strengthen them, you prioritize and organize them according to the value system and according to the kind of rank and priority that God describes them in his word. It's about prioritizing our convictions, not just deepening and strengthening them. Again, I think we can understand that this is, a, this is a function of maturity. Last week we learned that a, a function of maturity is humility. Because as you learn more, you inevitably learn just how much more you have to learn. Well, think about the way that a kid learns things and discovers truths about life. They discover, you know, how to swallow food or how to chew food or how to clean up, you know, dinner after they've eaten their food or how to clean the room or how to, you know, take a bath and turn the hot water off first so that they don't scald themselves or how not to, you know, put their hand on the red stove element or how to tie their shoe or wear a coat when it's cold. Like, there's lots of things that kids learn in their lives and lots of truths that they incorporate as they learn. But as a kid grows up and as a kid begins to mature, they don't just learn truth after truth after truth after truth in an entirely additive way. What they begin to learn is how to organize those truths into the really significant ones and into the less significant ones. Not that the less significant truths are any less true. But they discover that all truths are equally true, but not all truths are equally significant. There's a difference not in the degree of truth. There's a difference in the degree of significance of the truth. And in the same way from a spiritual perspective, I think that that's one of the things that God wants to do in our heads and our hearts is to kind of begin to churn as he strengthens our resolve to develop convictions and to be always prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we profess, to know more and more what we believe and why we believe it. But in a way that organizes and prioritizes and creates kind of a grid of all of God's truths according to the significance 
of them. And to ultimately get us to a place where we're not just developing convictions, but we're organizing those convictions around and under the primary conviction of love. That's what's going to close the gap and get us to a place of love beyond belief. When love becomes a conviction, and ultimately when love becomes our primary conviction, consistent with the convictions of God expressed in the scriptures. For those of us that think that we're going to get to love beyond belief, just waiting for warm and fuzzy feelings, at least in my experience, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Uh, I, I remember... Uh, back in September, uh, we were talking on the Vision Sunday uh, about this newspaper article that was going to be written uh, by a guy named Ted Moradian, who was describing uh, his relationship with this pastor guy that he met a few years ago. And I had shared that I was kind of anxious about it because I was sort of nervous to see how Ted would describe uh, his experience of our, of our friendship. And, and I was kind of intrigued when I first read the article about the way that Ted described our or described his perspective of our early interactions because it made me think of how I was feeling when we first met. And frankly, I was feeling very different. You know, full disclosure, I didn't want to meet with him at first. I didn't want to go for, for lunch with him. It, it, you know, to be totally blunt, I felt, like, I felt like I had a lot to lose and very little to gain. I thought, I thought that I could say something wrong or, you know, do something offensive or, or you know, get tweeted or misquoted or something. And, and you know, I, I was fearful. I was nervous, anxious about it. I, I didn't really want to, to have lunch with this guy. I didn't know them. I, I didn't know him. I had no reason to. But the longer I thought about it, the more I realized that at some level I needed to have lunch with him. I, if I was going to, you know, from a, the church's perspective, never mind from a personal perspective, if I was going to engage in the kind of relationships that I sensed God wanted us to, to learn about, the kind of relationships with people who see the world very differently than, than I might, then I needed to go for lunch with this guy, even though at the time I didn't want to go for lunch with him. And so at first I wasn't feeling any of those those kinds of feelings. In fact, I was feeling quite the opposite. But you know what happened in the course of a couple short hours in that first lunchtime conversation? As I opened myself up to, you know, this new relationship and began to ask questions and discover Ted's background and, you know, kind of stuff that uh, he liked to do, spending his time and whatever, I, I, I started to kind of discover that not only we had a lot more in common, I, I started to to appreciate the person, this person that I was meeting for the first time. You know, I started to hear him talk about, you know, what he was living for and giving himself, trying to give his very best to, to making our community a better place to live. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really admirable. I want to be into that. I like that. That's cool. You know, he shared stories about how he liked to spend time going to the hockey rink, watching his grandkids play hockey. You know, never mind going to the ice dogs and cheering, cheering for the ice dogs. And I thought, you know, as a hockey dad, I, I, I get that. I'm into that. That's cool too. Wow. That, that, I like that. You know, he talked about how he likes the vacation of Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard, if you don't know, is where I proposed to Becky. So I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I like that. And, and time and time again, what, what, I, what I was feeling was this kindredness of spirit establishing and pretty soon, I, I, I felt a warmth and an embrace and a, just a, 
just a friendship emerge and develop where over the years, God has strengthened it. And Ted and I have just really enjoyed getting together and sharing ideas, even though we understand that, you know, in some, if not a lot of things, we see the world and even faith differently. And the point of all that, and this is true of, of many aspects to faith, we teach this often around here, is that feelings followed obedience. Not the other way around. Feelings followed obedience. Some people want to be obedient, but they don't feel like it, so they don't do it. Thinking that they'll only be able to be obedient when their feelings lead them in that direction. That's not how, that's not how living out God's convictions works. Feelings follow obedience. And God showed up in awesome ways and has given us a great friendship that we can enjoy. Even though, at least from my perspective, I wouldn't have felt like I wanted to engage in that kind of relationship in the first place. And just to give you an example of what this looks on the other side and help you appreciate that, you know, experiences like I've had with Ted are still on the rarer side in a person like me. Um, I was reminded that it can go, it can go the other way too. Uh, just even recently, a couple weeks ago, I was at the four pad and I was getting my kids skates sharpened in the little store that they have there. And as I was getting the skates sharpened, someone walked in that I recognized from our church from a, a few years ago. And so I said, hi to them. Hey, how you doing? And they kind of gave me a very um, kind of lifeless response, kind of a, hey, you know, type of response. And maybe they were in a hurry and, you know, maybe they were busy or whatever, but uh, they certainly weren't thrilled to, to see me. And I thought back to when they were part of our church and kind of their, their history of their experience here and uh, remembered how, you know, them and their family had plugged in and, and seemed to be really enjoying things so much so that he had begun to invest his, his gifts and his passions into student ministry. And he was getting so excited about student ministry that he wanted to become a leader in student ministry. And, and I know that because, you know, all of a sudden I found myself in some conversations with other staff and, and uh and, and even youth leaders about the fact that, you know, if this guy wanted to be a, a youth leader, he wanted to serve in that capacity that he had to become a member of our church, an official member first. And if he was going to become an official member, he needed to be baptized on his faith because that was a, a, a prerequisite to our membership process. And, and he'd never been baptized on his faith because he actually came from a, a faith tradition that understood baptism a little bit differently, a faith tradition that baptized babies and uh, performed a different ceremony for people who wanted to publicly profess as conscious young adults or as adults their faith in Christ. It was called a profession of faith. And he had experienced that. He hadn't been baptized on his faith. And uh, because of that, he was driven to kind of study that a little bit more. And after, and after kind of restudying it for himself, he said, no, like I... I I actually believe in you know, what my parents did in my believer's baptism and I believe in the reasons why I engaged in profession of faith. I, I don't feel I need to it. I don't, in that sense, want to get baptized again in that way. And, uh, and so he wasn't able to serve. He, he wasn't welcome to be part of that table and one thing kind of led to another and his family drifted away from the church, if not maybe from Christ. And when I saw him at the forepad a couple weeks ago, I reflected on that and, and compared that to a situation like Ted and thought, what's the difference between those two kinds of impacts? 
What's the difference between someone tasting the flavor of Jesus and someone tasting something very different? You know, it's not feelings, because if anything, I would have felt more interested in being in relationship with the second guy and not not the first. Uh, And it's not convictions, because someone like me would have shared the the same convictions in, in both of those dynamics. If you stop and think about it, could it be the prioritization of convictions in those two ways of relating? You know, allowing love to be the governing conviction that drives one way of relating while allowing a different conviction than love to be the ultimate trump card and determining factor in another relationship? Do you think that maybe how we prioritize our convictions actually drives behavior and produces a kind of impact that can drastically change the flavor of whether a person encounters Jesus through us or not? That's what I want us to consider this morning. And that's what I want us to reflect on personally and talk about in our life groups this week. I want you to consider whether you've ever viewed love as a conviction or whether you've just viewed love like outside of you've got truths and then love is just a feeling have you viewed love as a truth as a first and greatest commandment of Jesus let alone have you viewed it as a primary truth you know when you think about the the truths and the the interpretations of the truth that you argue for do you argue and fight the most for the truths that most matter to God. You know, I, I actually was challenged a couple of weeks ago. I, I heard someone frame it this way. They said, when was the last time that you heard a person being unloving labeled a heretic? You ever heard that before? Have you ever considered that when you or someone else is being lo- unloving, that they're actually violating, you know, the truths of the scriptures more than just that they believe the wrong things, more than if they just get a, an interpretation incorrect. So have you ever viewed love as a conviction, let alone viewed love as a primary conviction? Because if all we're going to do is be open to other people, and if all we're going to do is even need other people to kind of provide perspective and speak into our lives, all we're going to ever be is truly Canadian. But if we can get ourselves to deepen our convictions to the place where we can organize and prioritize them in a more consistent way to the heart and vision and values of the God of the Bible, then we can actually get to a place of love beyond belief. And we can actually get to a place of active embrace and non-conditional acceptance and enjoy the feelings of friendship and camaraderie that go with it. And if we can get to that place, gang, we'll be more than just truly Canadian. At that place, people will know that we're truly Christian. Let's pray. God in heaven, thanks for this journey that you have us on. And thank you for the way that you want to open and work and rejig things in our minds and hearts. I pray that every one of us would give you a fullness of surrender and allow you 
as the leader of our lives to have your way among us. Thank you for your word and thank you for being our teacher. And I pray that as you continue to do so and as we expose ourselves to your truth to a greater and deeper degree, that we would just be resoundingly confronted with the primacy of your law of love. And I pray God that as we begin to understand the priority of your commands, the the priority of your value system, the priority and the primacy of love, that we would allow that by conviction, that we would allow that by obedience to drive and to dictate our behavior. And that as we do that, we can experience the wonder of feelings that follow. Help us to be quick to share those kinds of experiences and encouragements to one another. Help us to be quick to challenge and correct each other when we find ourselves off course from your divine design. And help us to give you the credit as you do the wonder of working in and changing our lives to make us think, to make us feel, to make us behave, and to make us exude more of the person of Jesus to each other and to the world around us. I pray more than anything that people would know, they would know that you are real by our love for each other that flows out of a love for you. Make us those people, people of that conviction today. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.